Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the Oasis, Gilbert, Arizona, and welcome to all of you who are joining us live stream from your homes this morning as well. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28 this morning. Before the message, just a reminder, this Wednesday, worship night at the Oasis. It's going to be an anointed evening of worship, the entire hour spent worshiping the Lord. We hope that you will avail yourself of this great opportunity to worship the Lord that evening and make it all about worship. Hope that many of you will be able to not only attend, but that you'll be able to invite somebody to come with you and join you for that night of worship. And then we'll resume our study of Exodus on Wednesday nights beginning on Wednesday, May the 17th. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, we are continuing our study of the gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus. And this morning we are at a place in the life and ministry of Jesus that he has been moving towards ever since he was born. He has been pointing, if you will, to this very day. In 28, after he said these things, speaking of the parable of the minas that we talked about last week, he continues on ahead and notice going up to Jerusalem. This has been the driving desire of Jesus' life. This has been the desire of that destination from the time he was born. He knew that that's where he was going to end up, Jerusalem. Throughout his whole ministry, we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke that he keeps pointing towards this moment. What destination are you driven towards? Jesus was driven towards Jerusalem. What is the goal or aim or destination in your life that you're driven towards? Paul had one. He said, my aim in life is to know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. This one thing, Paul said, I do, laser-focused, forgetting those things that are behind, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If we don't have a goal, an aim, a destination to shoot for, then we end up really not getting anywhere. Jesus had one. Paul had one. David had one. Psalm 27. One thing I've desired of the Lord. I want to dwell in his house. I want to contemplate his beauty. I want to meditate on the person of God. That was David's one thing. Jesus had this one thing, Jerusalem. By the way, one of the prominent themes you're going to see in this passage this morning is that when Jesus came the first time to earth, he came offering peace. He came to bring God's plan of peace to human beings and how you and I could have peace with God 
and live with the peace of God. And I want to start pointing out those things in this passage that remind us of that. Even the city of Jerusalem is significant because it means a place of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. So here he is, continuing on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Then in verse 29, Luke wants to give us some geographical markers. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants us to understand how close Jesus is to Jerusalem. He's here at a place called the Mount of Olives. Near there are two little towns, Bethphage and Bethany. The only thing separating the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem is what's called the Kidron Valley. Toby and Marcia were just there a few weeks ago. Mount of Olives sits on the east side of Jerusalem. You come down off of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and when you go back up, you're at Jerusalem. He's that close, okay? So Luke is sharing this with us to say Jesus doesn't have much time left. In fact, at this point, less than a week till he hangs on a cross. With that said, then, obviously, everything that Jesus does and everything that he says at this point is so huge because he's only got a few days left to instill into his followers some really significant and important things. So at this point, the Bible tells us he sends two of his disciples on an assignment, a mission. Now, we don't know who these two disciples are. That would be pure speculation. But one thing we don't have to speculate on is when Jesus sent out his disciples, he always sent them out in a pair, never alone, always with a partner. And so that's what he does here. And he tells these two disciples, whoever they are, he says, when you get to the next little village ahead, he said, there will be a colt tied there a colt that has never been ridden I want you to untie that colt and I want you to bring it here to me and if anyone asks you why are you why are you untying the colt just say the Lord needs it let's talk for a moment about the significance of this colt I mean out of all the things that we could be talking about And emphasizing at this point, you'll note here in this passage of Scripture, there's a lot about the cult. Well, that's because it's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus and how the Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem. In the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious. He is humble and riding on a colt. The other thing that we learn from Jesus using a colt is that this is not an animal of war 
or for war, this would have been an animal symbolizing peace, a peaceful animal, a humble animal. In contrast to Revelation 19 that we talked about several weeks ago, that when the king does come back to earth and establish his earthly, visible, literal kingdom, he won't be riding a colt. He'll be riding a steed, a white steed, a war horse, because he goes forth to war. But not now. Now when he comes to Jerusalem, he's coming on a colt. The other thing that Luke emphasizes, and you'll see this throughout, is how often he uses the words tied or untied. In fact, four times in the next few verses, you see some form of the word untied because it is a reminder that just as they're going to untie, they're going to release and set free this cult for service for the Lord, that that's exactly, again, why the Lord has come, not only to bring peace, but to set men and women free, to release them, to set them free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. And I love the fact that Jesus tells these two disciples exactly even what to say if someone questions them untying something that doesn't belong to them. He says, you just tell them the Lord needs it. He has it all covered. The Lord needs it. When you and I understand that Jesus is Lord supreme in authority, master and ruler of the universe, then whatever he asks of us, we should give it to him. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I have a purpose for this cult today. This cult is something that I have a use for, business with. And being that he is the creator and the source of all things, Anytime he comes to us and says, hey, Jeff, I need this. Will you give it to me for my use, for my glory? I should be willing to just turn that over to him because it's his anyway. Everything that we have comes from him. Therefore, we are just stewards. We are just managers. We didn't create it. We don't ultimately own it. It's the Lord's. Therefore, we should always be willing to give over to the Lord whatever the Lord is asking us to give to him. In this case, it was this cult. And then the Bible tells us in verse 32 that these two disciples, whoever they were, that when they went ahead, they found things exactly as Jesus told them it would be. Uh, This is a reminder of a couple important things that you and I can apply to our own life. First of all, we note there in what's already happened that Jesus knew exactly what the disciples would find when they moved ahead. Same thing is true in our life. Jesus knows what's ahead for all of us in our life. He's already there, (laughs) He knows what we're going to find a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. He knows what's in the future. Therefore, we should trust him in the present for this reason. 
whatever he's doing in our life now, part of it is to prepare us for what he knows is coming and we don't. That's why we should be following him every single day of our life and allowing him to prepare us because we don't know what is ahead for us, but he does. And just like these disciples, they also then realized that as they followed the Lord and were obedient to what the Lord asked them to do, their own faith was strengthened in him because they found once again that his word was absolutely reliable and dependable. As it says in verse 32, they found everything exactly as he told them it would be. That's always the case for God's word. When God says something or says something's going to happen a certain way at a certain time or whatever, you and I are going to find it's going to be exactly that way because that's how solid, that's how reliable, that's how dependable the Word of God is. In fact, it's even more reliable and dependable than creation itself because Jesus said, Heaven and earth one day is going to pass away, but my word never will pass away. It's more solid than even creation is, which is why you and I should place our faith and trust and belief and hope and conviction and confidence in the word of God. Well, then the Bible tells us that the owners of this coat come along as they're untying it. And you can imagine, they're like, oh, who told you you can do this? And why are you untying that cold? That doesn't belong to you. And they used the words that Jesus said. They said, well, the Lord needs it. And guess what? No questions asked. Notice that Jesus was even giving these disciples everything that they would need to carry out his will, including the words to say in order for everything to be okay. He didn't send them out there and have them try to figure it out for themselves. He gave them enough direction that all they had to do was follow his direction and they would be okay and be able to accomplish what Jesus sent them out to do. Same thing is true for us. And then I love this. It says they brought it, the colt, back to Jesus. They brought it to Jesus, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus. I, I want you to keep that phrase in mind for the rest of even this message and I hope even this coming week and this month and this year. It is always good for us to bring anything and everything to Jesus. Maybe you've had a situation or a circumstance or something come up in your life and you're trying to handle it or deal with it on your own. Bring it to Jesus today. It is only in him that you and I will be at peace in all situations and in all circumstances. Jerusalem, place of peace. Cult, animal of peace. The Bible tells us that when they bring the colt to Jesus, they lay their cloaks over it, and then he gets up on it. And as he's riding, others are throwing their cloaks and coats on the road as he's moving. And then it says that as he approaches this road, 
down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, the whole crowd begins to explode, if you will, in worship. It says the whole crowd begins to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen. And they quote Psalm 118, which is a celebration of God's plan. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then notice the next thing that they say. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Very similar to what the angels say at the birth of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. On this day, which many celebrate as Palm Sunday, yes, these worshipers, if you will, are very enthusiastic. But I will just tell you, I've never gotten enthusiastic about Palm Sunday like some churches do and some Christians do because most of the people in this crowd that is so enthusiastic in their worship of Jesus is because at this point they still believe that he's the one who's coming this time to overthrow the Roman Empire and to set up his literal visible, physical kingdom on earth. Now, that's why they're celebrating him. That's a cautionary tale for us as worshipers. Listen, we want to be enthusiastic in our worship. Otherwise, our worship of God is reduced to, to this coldness, if you will, and, and a lack of feeling. And we should always have enthusiasm and exuberance in our worship, but it should also be balanced, as Jesus taught us, that we are to worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. These people were a very fickle crowd because this same group that was so enthusiastic here are going to be some of the same people in less than a week that at Pilate's front door are going to be yelling, crucify him. So that's why we've got to balance our worship with spirit and with truth. It's never good to be enthusiastic as much as, you know, these folks were, if it's not balanced with the truth. But it's also just as important not to be a person who's all head and all truth and has no heart and has no exuberance and enthusiasm and feeling for God either. If these folks were truly on target, then in a few verses, Jesus would not have been weeping over Jerusalem, basically saying, you're missing your moment. Now, at this point, we also see something else happen. As these people are worshiping Jesus, the Pharisees get their hackles all up, and they basically turn to Jesus and say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, 
if they would withhold their praise and worship, these stones would cry out. Now, a couple things. First of all, you can also read in the Greek that phrase that Jesus uses this way. If they could withhold their praise, the stones would cry out. In other words, there's also a truth in here that Jesus is saying, when one truly understands who I am and has come to faith and belief in me, you can't withhold your praise and worship. You have to let it out because you know how much he means to you and who he is to you and how much you love him and you can't keep it inside. That should be true of us as well. That if we could withhold our praise, but we can't, we've got to praise the Lord. We've got to worship the Lord. We've got to express our love for God in a myriad of ways, including singing songs of praise to God. But Jesus is also saying, when mankind withholds their praise of me that I am worthy of and deserving of, stones will be a witness of who I really am. And in just a few verses, Jesus is going to say, there's coming a day for the city of Jerusalem and for Israel where one stone will not exist upon another. Those stones will be crying out to who I am because rejection of me meant judgment for the nation of Israel. There's another stone of witness, if you will. In a little bit more than a week, there's going to be a stone that is removed from a grave so that the world can look into an empty grave. And that stone will also be a witness, evidence as to who Jesus really is, that death could not hold him, and so the stone was rolled away. Then we come to a very poignant part in the story of Jesus. It says in verse 41 that as he approached and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept. And folks, this, this wasn't just shedding a few tears. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says Jesus wept. But there the word that is used just speaks of Jesus shedding a few tears. This word is not like that word. This word speaks of an intense agony. This word speaks of, of, a, of a, an expression of real grief and real feeling and emotion. Jesus is sobbing here, not just shedding a few tears. It is a reminder to us of the emotion that Jesus has over us as human beings and over the love that he has for people and over his desire to want to bring people into a right relationship with him because he understands more than we ever could that without him, we're never going to find peace. We're never going to find fulfillment. We're never going to find satisfaction. We're never going to experience real love when we reject the greatest love we could ever experience, which is the love of God. And he's emotional over it. He's sobbing as he looks out over the city, 
not for the city, but for the people that live in that city. And then he says these words as he's sobbing. If they had only known on this very day, even you, the things that make for peace. Notice that when Jesus says, if they had only known, the implication is they could have known and they should have known. I wonder how we can even apply that to our life. Are there times in our life where we're living without the peace of God that we could be living with? We're not at peace. And it's all because there's things that we could have known and things that we should have known or should have done and could have done that we're not doing and that's why we're not at peace in our life. And it breaks the heart of God because it wouldn't have to be that way. I think about even in our world today and in our country and even amongst Christians today, how many people are filled with, with anxiety and angst and, and they're stressed to the max and, and they're just, they're as tight as a drum, as we say. And their life is filled with worry and and anxiety, and they, they can't sleep, and they can't eat, and all of these things. And I can only imagine how it breaks the heart of God for, to, to look and see so many folks who are not at peace. If they had only known the things that make for peace. And this is a message all in itself. I'm, I'm not going to dive into this this morning. But it's also very significant there that Jesus says this very day. Why is that significant? Because I believe that what he is referring to is that the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem should have known the exact day that their Messiah was going to enter into Jerusalem because it's based on Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy. If you study the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, Daniel has it down to the very day in history when Jesus would ride on a coat into Jerusalem. In other words, God was giving his people the exact day that Jesus, the Messiah, would come, and they missed it. Think about that. If they had only known the things that make for peace. And when we talk about peace, you and I can never experience peace apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, Having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to have peace with God is through Jesus, through a relationship and faith in him. Otherwise, you and I can never have peace with God. It only comes through Jesus. And if we don't have peace with God, we can never experience the peace of God that passes all understanding because it starts with peace with God first. But even for those Christians that have peace with God, many of us live without the peace of God reigning in our life. 
Jesus said it this way in John 16, He says, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble and suffering. But take courage, Jesus said. I've overcome the world. See what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, look, your life isn't going to be easy. Life on earth isn't going to be easy. Life on earth is going to be filled at times with trouble and suffering and challenges and obstacles and opposition and all kinds of stuff. But I, I am the eye of the storm. If you learn to envelop your life in me and to live in me, all this stuff in your life and in your country and in the world can be swirling around you and chaotic and going crazy and all of that. And yet in me, you can be at perfect peace. That's what we need to do. Because Jesus doesn't promise us that things are going to get even easier or better. He promises us that leading up to the time of his return, things are actually going to get worse. So unless you and I can find to be at peace in him, then we're going to get caught up in the trouble and suffering and the chaos and the circumstances and the situations of our life. And we're going to live so far apart from the peace that God came to give to us. How sad that the place of peace, Jerusalem, was not a place where people were enjoying peace in Jesus' day. And it's never been a place of peace, literally and figuratively. And it won't be until Jesus comes back. Oh, to know the things that make for peace. And then Jesus goes on to say, there's coming a day where your enemies will build an embankment around you. They will surround this city. They will encircle it and close in on it, and they will demolish you and the children you have within it. And not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus is predicting the coming of Titus in 70 A.D., when that general marches into Jerusalem with the Roman army and destroys it. Because rejection of Jesus brings judgment. And here it is temporal judgment. One day it will be eternal judgment for those that reject Jesus. And those stones are crying out. I thought of Mike today as I was preparing for this message because he was sharing with me and has shared with me many times that when he had the opportunity to go to Italy that one of his favorite spots is the Arch of Titus where they actually have depicted Titus and the Roman army carrying away all the valuables out of the temple in Jerusalem and carrying them back to Rome. It's exactly what Jesus predicted here. And it happened... Just as we learned back in verse 32, exactly like Jesus said, it would happen. And then notice the next phrase in verse, in the verse. Because they did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. Whoa. 
They failed to perceive or respond that the presence of God was amongst them. They missed it. Jesus is basically saying the nation of Israel missed its moment. Oh, what might have been had they truly embraced Jesus as their Messiah and would have understood the things that make for peace that they could have known and that they should have known and that they were understanding who was in their midst. It was not just a human being. It was the God-man, Jesus Christ. But they did not perceive or respond to the presence of God properly. And I only could think in applying this to our own life, and I'm I'm not going to do it personally because we each have to do that between us and God. But as a church, I think to myself, oh, I don't want us to miss our moment. I want to make sure that, that we are responding and perceiving when the presence of God is here and when he's moving and he's, when he's working and when he's amongst us so that we don't miss our time when God visits us or else we're missing our moment. And these moments and these opportunities will go by and we might not ever get those opportunities again. And this Sunday might be just one of those opportunities where the Spirit of God is here in full force and we sense him and we feel him and he wants to work and he wants to do a work and he wants to move in our lives and in our church and and move us forward with God. Are we perceiving it? Are we responding to his visiting us this morning? Or like the Israelites in Jesus' day, are we not even recognizing that he's amongst us? Do we not even know that he's here? Do we not even sense his presence? And will this be another Sunday where we come and we put in our time and we sit in our seat and we go home and nothing in our life changes because we did not recognize the time of his visitation? It is always important that you and I learn as God's people to recognize when God is visiting us. Yes, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. But there's still a difference between knowing that God, in a sense, is everywhere and that he lives within us and really knowing when you're sensing his presence and you sense him moving and working. That's another level. And that's something that we as Christians have to learn to do. Nicole even encouraged us in that way a couple weeks ago to be able to start to learn as a church when we sense God visiting us, when we sense his presence moving and working in our midst. And that's exactly what the Israelites missed in Jesus' day. They were God's people. They had the entire Old Testament. They had this, all this spiritual ancestry and foundation, and yet they missed God and the working of God and the moving of God and what God wanted to do, which was primarily bring peace to their lives. And you and I know the history of Israel. They've still not been at peace, nor will they be at peace until they acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah one day. Israel will always be 
a hot spot. Always be a place of turmoil in our world because they have rejected their Messiah. One more thing. Jesus next goes into the temple courts and he begins to drive out those that are selling things there. And he says to them, my house is a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. This event is like Jesus throwing a stick of dynamite on his relationship with the religious leaders of Israel. Because you'll note in just a few verses, they just want to assassinate him. They, they, they just want to wipe him off the face of the earth. A couple things in wrapping this up this morning. Notice Jesus reminds us that this, even today as we apply this message to us, that this is not our house, this is his house. This isn't our house. This is God's house. Therefore, he's the one that calls the shots. He's the one that defines what goes on here. The problem is throughout history, man has taken the house of God and turned it into what he wants it to be rather than keeping it sacred and set apart for primarily the worship of God. Because what Jesus is saying here is that my house, by saying the word prayer, that word is also interchangeable with the word worship. He's saying my house should be a place of worship. That's what my house should be known for. And yet so often, and, and especially can I say today, and some of you may disagree with me, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree, okay? That the church today, even in America, has become a catch-all for every last thing that the community and the people of the church and everything wants to do. There's nothing special or sacred or set apart about the house of God being the place of worship. And I'm not saying that these programs and all these other things that run through churches today are bad in and of themselves. They could be good. I'm just saying they shouldn't be at the church. The church should be the place where we come to worship God. And if we want to do those other things, we do them apart so that the church remains that sacred set-apart place where only the worship of God takes place. We water down the sacredness and the set-apartness, if you will, of this space when we do everything here. And that's what the church has become. It's the entertainment place. It's the, this place. It, it, you know, schools are, are there and every, I mean, it, programs are there. And again, I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm saying, but what happens then is the sacred space loses its sacredness. Think about what we're learning in the book of Exodus on Wednesday night. Was the tabernacle to be used for anything other than the worship of God? No. Not only that, but God was trying to even teach his people back there. I'm even telling you that the things that you use in my house should only be exclusively used for my house, not for your personal use. So God went through and said, the anointing oil that's used in my tabernacle and the, uh, 
the other stuff that's used, the incense and all of that, the recipe that I give you, it should only be used for the tabernacle. If you use it for your personal use, it's not going to go well for you. I want whatever is used at my house to be exclusive. I want my house to be kept sacred. It should be a house of worship for God, and that's what it should primarily be known for. I wonder today if Jesus would come and say to many of us in our local churches, look what you've turned my house into. It houses everything now. There's nothing really special or set apart or sacred about my house anymore. Everything takes place in it. I don't see that in the word of God. I see that God's house should be something that's exclusively for the worship of God, period. In this very dramatic and defining passage in the story of Jesus, the one thing, though, that God kept impressing upon me was that everything that Jesus did at this point was to bring peace to people's lives. Peace with God and the peace of God that passes all understanding. I, I, I want you to go back and look at that phrase in verse 42. If they had only known the things that make for peace. That phrase and the phrase in verse 44 about they did not recognize the time of God's visitation. Let those phrases really reverberate in your heart and soul in the days ahead. Because God wants us more and more to be aware of his presence in our life. And not just to be aware of it, but to respond to it when he's visiting his people. And God came so that we would be at peace with God and through then the peace we have with God, we could live with the peace of God that passes all understanding. If you're here today and you don't have peace with God or the peace of God, come to Jesus today. Bring whatever is troubling you or causing you anxiety. or anxiety. Just like the cult was brought to Jesus Bring it to Jesus and let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your heart and your mind. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. And while they're coming, I'm going to ask us to stand, please, and close in prayer. Father, I believe that your presence is here with us today. You are our guest, our honored guest. And we are very privileged and blessed to have you here with us today. I pray that we won't miss our moment with you today. 
that we won't let this opportunity of you here and you moving and you working to pass us by and not do anything about it. And God, I pray that we would also know as your people the things that make for peace. And that, God, we would realize that ultimately all peace comes through Jesus Christ. He is our peace. And he can give us peace with God, and he can also be our peace and and be the peace of God that passes all understanding. God, I pray today that if we are here today and we are not at peace God, we would allow you to bring that peace that only you can bring into our lives today. We need you, Lord. We look to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.